Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. And again Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention, and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops, and destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those who were invited were unworthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, How did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him out into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this morning, Lord, we are in awe that you are a God who has given us your word, your revelation. Lord, as Ira prayed, we ask that you would open our eyes and our ears, Lord, that we might hear your word, that we might know how to apply it. In Christ's name, amen. Now, today we are continuing our walk through the book of Matthew, and it's helpful to remember where we are and when we are. We're right in the middle of Passion Week. Jesus has come to Jerusalem. He's made this long journey to Jerusalem. And and as he's come in, the week started with the crowds crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is the Son of David. And by the end of the week, we know what will happen. The crowds will again be crying out. But instead, they'll be crying out, Crucify Him! See, Jesus had made this long trip to Jerusalem. But when He came to the holy city, what He found there is distressing. See, Jesus came, and the first thing that we saw Him do was He cleansed the temple. That this place of God's worship, this symbol of God meeting with man, had become this marketplace. A house of prayer became a house of thieves, a den of robbers. See, as Pastor Mark has reminded us, that the temple has failed to be faithful to God. The nation of Israel has failed to produce fruit. The elders have failed to lead God's people faithfully. The chief priests have failed to honor God with their sacrifices. The Pharisees have failed to teach God's law in truth, implementing rather a legalistic, self-righteous religion. See, the king had come to his city and his people. But it became increasingly clear that, that when Jesus had come to Jerusalem, he had actually come to enemy territory. Instead of being worshipped 
he was confronted by the leaders that felt challenged by his authority. And so Jesus turned his attention upon them. Uh, And today is the third parable. It's the third time that Jesus is confronting these religious leaders. And he's been very, very personal as he's been explaining these things. You'll remember the first week with the two sons. And Jesus had concluded that saying that I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. And then last week we looked at the parable with the tenants and and, and Jesus concluded that and he, he turned on them again saying that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that are producing fruit. See, over and again, Jesus condemns the fruitlessness of Israel. And justice is coming. But as Pastor Mark keeps pointing out, there's a theme that parallels this. Justice. It's mercy and grace. See, in our parables, we remember one son didn't produce fruit. But shockingly, surprisingly, the other one did. The one group of tenants, the wicked tenants, wouldn't give the fruit back to the king and treated his servants terribly. And yet the, the, the vineyard's going to be given to those who will produce fruit. And this is the climax of our, of our passage today. This picture of these three parables coming together. This, these themes of fruitlessness and justice and grace and fruitfulness. See, as Jesus explains the kingdom of heaven, He gives us the point to the parable in verse 14. He says, many are called, but few are chosen. Another way to understand this or, or think about this is that many are invited, but not everyone who is invited is elected. Not everyone who outwardly is called attends the feast of the kingdom. And to get this point across, what we'll see Jesus do is he's going to walk us through a pattern that repeats itself twice. We see a, a king's gracious invitation followed by a people's fruitlessness and then the king's judgment. But paralleling this pattern, we recognize God's amazing grace poured out lavishly as the invitation to the feast of the kingdom is spread far and wide. So then looking at our parable, we, we immediately see this theme, this, this idea of the king's invitation right away in verse 2. If you look at that, it says the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. See, God, the father is the initiator and the authority. He's the king who has prepared this great feast. And as we know, feasts are momentous occasions. Times for gathering together. A place where fellowship and joy and laughter and love are all represented and shown before us with large amounts, way too much food that we could possibly eat. It's not a time when we bring out our boxed mac and cheese and our hot dogs and our grape Kool-Aid. No, no, no. That's a six-year-old birthday party. What we're talking about here is this extravagant feast 
the best of the best, your prime rib and steak, your, your homemade mashed potatoes, your very favorite recipes, the most delicious desserts, and you bring them all out in these huge proportions. And we have a table that is weighed down with food as our hearts are, are, are brought up and lifted high in this time of fellowship with the people that we love. And see, to add to this scene, uh, Jesus makes it really clear that this is a great festival, a great feast, because it's a royal banquet. It's a royal wedding feast for His Son. Right? So in every culture, weddings are a big deal. They're, they're a time and occasion of great joy and celebration and excitement. I'm not sure if you've ever seen the show Shark Tank before, uh, but it's this show where uh, these entrepreneurs and, and startup companies come in and try and get a loan from these big shark investors. And so they come in and they pitch their product, hoping that the shark will bite to buy their product. And in one episode, uh, Mr. Wonderful, one of the ruthless sharks, made this comment. He said, I'm always looking to invest in weddings. Because in weddings, people are, don't cut corners. And they're willing to pay exorbitant amounts of money. Way more than they would normally pay for anything. That the wedding market is a great market to be in. And if that's true for us, if that's true for our society, how much more for this king? For this royal wedding feast prepared for a prince? The invitations go out to the party. And saying, come to the party of your lives. It's as if the, he's saying, come and celebrate this life-changing moment in our family. You are honored by our family. Come, let us express our joy and our love and our thankfulness. Let us live like kings for the night. See, it's interesting that in the first two parables, God asks the people in the parables to do something, to sacrifice something, right? The sons are to go out and they're to work in the fields. The tenants are to bring fruit back to the master. But in, our, in this parable, they're asked to attend a feast. See, the father has done all the work. He's prepared the dinner. He's killed his fattened calves. He's done all the work. He's done all the sacrificing. And all he's asking the people to do is come and enjoy this feast with him. But the shocking thing is that they would not come. It wasn't that they, they couldn't come. No, no, they were, they were able to come. But they chose not to. That individually, no one came. That corporately, everyone simply ignored the call. And so the, the king calls them again, almost pleading with them to come to the feast. You can hear it in verse 5. He tells his servants to tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the feast. The king remains alone, watching the food get cold. See, instead of coming to the table, we see that the invitees paid no attention at all. We see that one goes off to his farm and another goes off to do his business. And the point's clear, like they're just doing normal life. That a normal day in ordinary, mundane life was more important to them than the feast of the king. That joy should have compelled them to get up and go and attend. But instead, they treat the joy of the king 
with indifference. The feast of heaven was theirs for the taking. They were indifferent and apathetic to it. Worse, like the parable that we saw before this, uh, they actually treated the servants shamefully, or mistreating them and, and killing some of the messengers of grace and invitation. And Jesus' message is clear. The Jewish people didn't bear fruit. The fruit of faith. The nation of Israel had been invited to the feast through God's covenant promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. The promise has had come through Moses and through David. The invitation was out there. And the prophets came bringing this again and again, reminding the people to come to the feast and come to the Father. We saw this in the prophets and we saw this in John the Baptist. And Paul says it this way in Romans 9 and 10, to the Israelites belong the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the worship and the promises. But Paul is saying this from a place of sorrow and anguish in his heart because he knows that the people by and large have rejected Christ, the Savior, the Messiah. The feast is in Jesus. Everything was leading up to Him. And He's the one that they've been waiting for. The way to the Father. But instead of seeing the Son, they pursued self-righteous religious endeavors instead. And so Paul tells us that Israel pursued the law, but it didn't succeed in reaching the law because they didn't pursue it by faith. But as as if it were based on works, Stumbling over the stumbling stone, the rock of offense. They did not pursue the righteousness of God, but rather sought to establish their own. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. These people had been invited to the feast. God had called them out of the world to be His people and to bear His fruit. They had forfeited their birthright. It ignored the invitation and treated God's prophets shamefully. Worst of all, they would crucify the Messiah. And in rejecting the Son, they rejected the Father. Their obstinance and unbelief led to severe judgment, which is described in our passage as the king sending his armies to destroy the murderers and to burn the city. It's this idea that God, as God had raised up King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon in the Old Testament, He was raising up the the Romans in the New Testament. Like the Babylonians, they would come to Jerusalem in 70 A.D. and they would again burn the city to the ground, leading to this great destruction. And what we see this for the Jewish people in Jesus' day It's important for us not to arrogantly miss the warning that Jesus gave to them. That Jesus is a kind and patient Savior, but He's also a severe judge. See, the kingdom is both coming and it has come. That Jesus marks for us the already and not yet reality of the kingdom. How did people respond to this first invitation? Well, they were indifferent to it. And they ignored it. They paid it no mind. They went about their daily business preferring their ordinary busyness to their Savior's presence. 
See, today the invitation to the feast goes out each week in the preaching of the Gospel and as His people proclaim the Gospel in their daily interactions. See, believers call their children and their neighbors and their co-workers and everyone in their path to know Christ, to know the Gospel. Yet as we look around in our daily lives, how many people think like this? How many people understand Even self-proclaiming Christians often struggle to lay down our best efforts in self-righteousness and self-directed religion and come to Christ rather with empty hands of faith, looking to Him alone. See, like the Israelites, Jesus calls His people to look to Him alone, exclusively as our Savior, and to come to Him and find salvation. Now, this idea of the gospel going out in this broad invitation is what we see in verses 8 through 10. As we see the, the pattern begin again, we've seen the, the gracious invitation, we've seen the fruitlessness of the people, and we've seen God's justice. And so now we see it again as the king again provides us this gracious invitation. See, after the king's wrath was spent, He didn't say that the feast is off or the marriage is off. Rather, he he sends the invitation out again, but to different folks. Look at what he says. He says, the wedding feast is ready, but those who are invited were not worthy. Go therefore out into the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. And two things that I want to draw our attention to here. One is, is this word all and how Jesus includes in this call both the bad and the good. So in other words, this isn't a moment where the, the A-list wouldn't come. So go out and find the next best. It wasn't that the varsity wasn't quite good enough, so go out and get the JV. No, no, he means everyone, the best and the worst, the morally responsible and the irresponsible, the wealthy and the beggars. He's talking about everyone, successful, unsuccessful, good reputations and bad. And the second thing that, that we want to note is why does he do this? What, what's the purpose in grabbing everyone that you find out in the streets? Well, it's so that the wedding hall would be filled with guests. See, the, the king has a gracious, extravagant feast for his people, and he will have his wedding hall filled with guests. What's Jesus' point here? What's well, a shocking reality? That the gospel was about to go out with new force. That while the covenant people of God was often thought to be contained within the Jewish people, this wasn't God's ultimate plan. Actually, as we read the Old Testament, we recognize that this blessing of the nations, the going forth of God's Word to all people in all nations, was going to come. And God was going to do that through His people Israel. See, God's feast was going out by the word of the coming prophet, a prophet greater than Moses, through the sacrifice of the great high priest by the order of Melchizedek. 
by the coming king, David's greater son. See, in Psalm 2, we hear this. We hear that the father declares to the son, you are my son. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. See, the doors of the kingdom were coming flying open so that as Hosea prophesied in the Old Testament, that those who are not my people, I will call my people and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. They shall be called sons of the living God. See, good and bad, high and lowly, Jew and Gentile categories were coming down as grace would flood the earth in Noahic proportions. See, salvation is given as a gift to be enjoyed by the people in every tribe, in every tongue, in every nation. The covenant promises of God weren't simply passed down through one's bloodline, but by faith. Trusting in the Messiah, the son of Psalm 2, the snake crusher that was prophesied in the garden. And here we are. Jesus is in Jerusalem. And He's surrounded by all of these Old Testament prophecies that are pointing directly at Him. Screaming out, everything is ready. Come to the feast. While Jesus was despised and rejected by men, the feast was still on. And the wedding hall would be filled. What what joyous good news this is for us. That we are invited to the feast. As the parable makes clear, coming to the feast is both a privilege, but also a requirement. Judgment is waiting for those who don't attend. Not only are we to come to the feast, but we're to come to the feast, the king's feast in the king's way. See, verse 11 shows us another wrinkle, another picture of fruitlessness. It says that when the king came to look at his guests, he saw a man with no wedding garment. He said, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? But the man was speechless. That like out of the multitude of the good and the bad and everybody that's been brought in, there's one man that stuck out. Everyone was decked out in these fine linen garments and robes fit for a wedding. And one man wasn't. So when the king confronted him, the man couldn't give an answer. And so he was bound up and thrown out into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. This, this picture of judgment, eternal torment that Jesus uses elsewhere. And I think the natural question we ask is like, what's going on? Like, why? Isn't this a bit harsh? Like, we didn't hear anything about a dress code and we're just going to throw this man, we're going to bind him up and throw him out. Like, what's going on here? What does Jesus mean when he says this? So what we need to think about is what, how do the scriptures speak about robes and garments and in this spiritual sense? Like what, what is this? Well, it's our clothing. It's the thing on our, on the outside by which we present ourselves. Scripture often speaks of it as our deeds and our outward behaviors that we wear. 
And one clear example of this is back in Zechariah chapter 3. When we went through the eight visions of the night in Zechariah, there's this scene that takes place where Joshua in this vision uh, is the high priest of the people and he's standing before the Lord and he's wearing filthy rags. But the context shows us clearly that it's not rags that he's wearing. It's his deeds. It's iniquity that's on the outside. And Joshua isn't alone. You'll remember that that Satan is there with him. The accuser is there with him. And he's doing one thing and one thing only. He's accusing Joshua. Saying you don't belong here. But the beautiful thing that we see is that Satan doesn't get the last word. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. He goes on to say that those standing nearby remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away. And I will clothe you in pure vestments. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. His filthy robes of iniquity were taken away. And clean robes of the Lord were given to him so that he could properly stand in the Lord's presence. That Satan could no longer accuse Joshua of any moral filth because God had taken him away and he had made him totally and wholly righteous in God's sight. This is what seems to be happening here in our parable that God is the just and also the justifier. That the king in our parable seems to do this for his subjects as Calvin notes that whoever the Lord invites, he at the same time supplies with clothing. So when the invited immediately responded to the call and came into the king's wedding feast, they came into the palace and were given wedding garments fit for the occasion. And this picture of imputation, the exchanging of our robes and filthiness is what Christ does for His people. See, in ourselves, we stand before God vile and guilty and defiled. And Satan rightfully accuses us of our sin, saying that we do not belong here. But Satan doesn't get the last word. God always gets the last word. And Jesus Christ came into this world to ransom sinners. That He put on flesh and He lived a perfect life. That His deeds were this robe of perfection, were pure and clean. That they were bright and they were white. And and rather than keeping His robe, what Jesus did was He took it off. And He gave it to His people. His people gave Him their filthy garments and exchanged it for His clean one. That is, as people come to the Lord, understanding our filthiness, we come to Him in this this repentance where we say, woe is me. I am a sinner. I am broken. I am empty. I am unworthy. God, save me. From this place of repentance. We find grace from a place of brokenness. We're filled. He took our dirty, filthy rags upon Himself, suffering the judgment that we deserve, the destruction and the burning we see in our passage, the weeping and the gnashing of teeth 
as He died on the cross taking the curse for us. He took our filthy garments and clothed us in His perfect righteousness so that we can sing here in a few moments our song with with tears in our eyes and lumps in our throats. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look, I see Him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. Feast of Christ is given for you. The robes that you require are given to you. So God calls His people to put on Christ. That on the last day, we will stand before the judgment seat of God to give an account in anything less than Christ. Even our best, most heroic, most self-sacrificial acts won't matter. We won't be able to fall back on our family or our church attendance or anything that we've done in this life. Instead, we will look to Christ and say, Christ has done it all. Christ has paid for me. Christ is my righteousness. And in Christ, He he calls us to be branches, that He's the vine, and we are the branches, that He recreates us and makes us new and leads us in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. See, as we are in Christ, we do produce fruit. Fruit of repentance and fruit of obedience and fruit of righteousness. That is, apple trees produce apples and fig trees produce figs. God calls His people to produce fruits in good works. Not to gain salvation, but because we're, being, we're reflecting the thing that we've been made into. Because we are clothed in Christ's righteousness, He produces righteousness in us. Which is why Paul reminds us to put off our old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through the deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Put on the new self, created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. See, our gracious King has invited us to the feast. Our gracious King has provided for us wedding garments to attend. Our gracious King has called us to fruitfulness, shown in love, directed toward our God and our neighbor. See, on that day, there will be a reckoning. There will be judgment for fruitlessness, a feasting for the fruitful. We're reminded of the royal wedding feast in our parable, which points us to the great marriage supper of the Lamb, the point of everything as we await Christ. But what's beautiful about this marriage of the Lamb is that God's people, we will be invited to that wedding feast, but not even just as honored guests, but as His people, as the church, as His body, as the bride. John describes it in this way. He says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. 
It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. People of God. God has prepared this marriage supper of the Lamb. And so we look to Christ, our Savior, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who bids us to come to the wedding feast. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.